Father, once again, we are thankful for the privilege of studying your word and of knowing what it has to say. We ask now that we would simply take the word of God at face value and let it speak for itself. We don't have to invent anything. We just have to take what the word of God says literally, and it will keep us out of error. May we do so tonight and every night. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Now, we're going through these lists of things, and we're looking at, at some, of the thi- some of the clear evidences in John that this shows you the, important, the importance of the Gospel of John is that it really shows you that the church at the end of the first century was already way off the rails and had a great deal of difficulty with the deity of Christ. And if you ask a simple question, what is the biggest problem that the church has today, among other things? Well, it has a problem with, with a, recognizing the deity of Christ. They have a problem. They've never gotten over that. And the other problem they have is they want to keep the law of Moses in some fashion, and that's still here today. So the two problems that were the dog, the early church, they're still here. They, nothing's changed in that sense. So now when you go down through here, for example, you have in John chapter 6 where Jesus fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and it indicates in the text, if you read those verses, and that doesn't count the women and children. So if there were 5,000 men, and assuming that most of them probably had a wife, and there were several children there, there could have easily been 15,000 people. Easily, maybe more. How do you do that? Now, if that's not something that's out of the ordinary, if that doesn't point to some great ability, some superhuman ability, some supernatural, I don't know what does. And so you get down through here. Now, in, it, there's so many other ones that, uh, that you can see in here. For example, one of, the, one of the ones that's very important is there's two in John 8. Well, actually three we'll take a look at. Go to John chapter 8, and we're going to look at three, of, three things here that are clearly indicative of the deity of Christ. There's just no question about it. It's just so much here that it's almost as though you, you hate to even talk about the deity. You say, we can prove the deity of Christ. After a while, it just gets to be so repetitive. There's so much. Where do you stop? Well... In John 8, 24, look what he says. Now, here's deity. I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am. Now, notice he's italicized. Leave it out. If you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Now, here was a message when Christ was on earth. How did a person get saved? They had to look at that man, and they had to see that that was God in flesh. You couldn't prove it. That didn't make any sense to most people. You couldn't look at a man and say, that's God in flesh. But they had to believe that to be saved when Christ was on earth. That was the message. If you don't believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Now, he says something else just a few verses down. In verse 28, Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when people talk about lifting up the Son of Man or lifting Jesus up, uh, they think they're saying something good. In the scripture, when they lifted him up, when they lifted up the Son of Man, they're talking about the cross. They put the cross on. They lifted him up. So please don't say, that. let's lift up the name of Jesus. We don't want to put him on the cross again. That's what it meant. But so when they lifted him up, it says, then you shall know that I am. Now, you don't see what this says? When you have put me on the cross, you will know that I am. I'm the deity of the Old Testament. I'm that one. I am. And I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. But it says, you shall know by experience. This is the word that's know by experience. They would know by experience that it was I am. You mean to tell me these people put him on the cross knowing who he really was? What's this? Some of them did. Some of them apparently knew. This is why it's so, so heinous what they did. 
there were some that knew. They figured it out. They knew who he was. They knew he was I am, and they did it anyway. Amazing. That, that's one of the most amazing verses in the Gospel of John. Then John 8.58 is the other one here. If you look down at down, this one, is, this one is very, very well known. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Eternality, deity, no doubt about it. And of course, they got the message because they were going to throw stones at him. By the way, when you notice verse 59, do you see anything interesting in there? These people have got stones ready to throw. These were the real rolling, these were the first rolling stones. They were going to be rolling all right, right off of the body of Christ. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. Now, how did that happen? This was a miracle here. Do you see that? He hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. Do you think they just let him go by? He said, he said wait a minute, guys, I got a cake in the oven I got to go take care of. Let me go. No, they didn't just let him go. He hid himself. He vanished out of their sight. And then he went right out through the midst of them. There's a... You think that these, these, these people back here would have noticed this and would have thought something? But their hatred and their blindness was so intense. It says back in verse 28, they're going to figure out who he is. They had every reason to know who he was. There was so much evidence there. Well, if you skip down, there's a whole bunch more. But look at John chapter 14, where Jesus said, and this is very powerful. When the disciples... And it, it, it's, it's a hard thing to grasp. Deity is a hard thing to grasp, manifest through the flesh, but it's the only way we could ever see it. In John, John 14, verses 6, beginning verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father, for henceforth you've seen him and know him. Philip, answered, Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou, show us the Father? Now, is Jesus saying, I'm the Father? No. If you see what I do, you see what the Father do. Remember John 5, 18? I do the same thing the Father does the same way he does it. And if you put up against this, you could put against this verse in Mark in your Bible, John 1, 18. Because it said Jesus thoroughly explained deity. He manifested, he revealed what deity is like. And this is one of the, one of the in the first chapter of John, one of the, one of the probably the most, second, uh, second only to the first couple of verses in, in John 1.18, it says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, that word for declared there is a word that I like. It's a word for exegete. It's, in fact, it's transliterated into English as exegeted him. He exegeted him. In other words, he thoroughly explained what deity is like. And so when you go to John 14, verses 7 through 9, that's what he's telling Philip. I manifested what God is like, and when you put that up against John 1.18, it tells you, if you have any doubt what it means, you look at that, and he thoroughly explained what God is like. Now, when you look at that, and... Uh, Again, you have something similar to that. In John chapter 17, you can see that Jesus, way down, GG down there, skipping a whole bunch of them. And you can go through these and look at them. It's just amazing. If any believer has a problem with the deity of Christ, just show them this page. Print it up and give it to them. And this is just, 
this may not be everything. Now, admittedly, there are some that people have a problem understanding or accepting, but there's plenty of them in here that is going to come right out and jump off the page at you. But in John 17, 6, in his upper room prayer, Jesus, verse 6, he, he, he claims he told the Father he fully manifested God's character. He said, I've declared your name. Please remember what name stands for in Scripture. We sometimes use it that way. It's your reputation. You're as good as your name. I've got a name. What does that mean? I've got a reputation. I'm known for something. Jesus said, I've declared your name. I've declared your reputation. So there's no question. I mean, he's... uh, If you look over top of page 16, Jesus stated... Oh, I I love this one. Do you remember this one in John chapter 18? This is one I've... I don't know. I think some people miss it. They just read it and don't realize. But look at John chapter 18 for just a moment. Um, I think what happened here is Jesus gave one last public display to a group of individuals that were coming to arrest him. One last public display of who he really was. Because if you look at John chapter 18, uh, John chapter 18, and let's begin... um, uh, okay, at verse 3. John 18, beginning of verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said, Whom seek ye? Then they said, they said unto him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he said, unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. What happened there? Bunch of, awkward, bunch of stumbling, bumbling idiots? Oh, they came and they were punched. They had to get drunk to go wreck Jesus, so they were all half drunk because they had to get courage somehow. No. When he spoke, the power of that word just, bam. And I really believe that's the last little show. The last time he showed anything that was a sign that could have shown who he was. Now, it's not called a sign in the Gospel of John, but it's a display that you don't very often think about, but he knocked these people off their feet. Now, they say it again. He says to them again, when they get up, he turns around and says, verse 7, then he asks them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, therefore, and told, uh, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If ye seek, if ye, therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. So the second time he doesn't do it, but the first time he did that, do you th- can, how can you imagine these people, him speaking that word and that power just blasts them backwards? And they don't seem to see a problem with this? Uh, wouldn't you think these guys would say, you know, I don't think I want to mess with this guy. He's bad. You know, he's bad. Glad <laughs> cliche, he bad. Yeah, he's a bad boy. You don't want to mess with him. But he showed them. So, and then lastly, just uh, in John nineteen seven, look what the Jews said. John nineteen verse seven. Uh, when Pilate wanted to uh, crucify him, in verse six, John nineteen verse six, when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" And you notice it's really just crucify, crucify. It's like a chant. Crucify, crucify, crucify. You could just hear them bellowing that. It, Pilate said to them, Take and crucify, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, 
we have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now, please remember, when they say Son of God, they're not talking about a little child. They're talking about equality. Sonship, equality, authority, position, privilege. He claimed to be God. They knew it. Here's your answer right here. Did they know what they were doing? He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, back in John 8, it says, you're going to know by experience. I wonder if some of them already didn't know that. But they thought they could get rid of God? You talk about how wicked humans can be. Maybe now you understand some of the reason that the Jews went through things like the Holocaust. Maybe this has something to do with it. Look what they did to the Savior. They knew who he said he was. They didn't care. Amazing. Well, and then, of course, you can see we put down there on the top of page 16 uh, where you have Thomas and John 20, verse 28, he recognized Jesus as my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, no, no, you're wrong. No, he's my Lord and my God. And, and so Thomas recognized him. So you look at this, and is there any question that the book of John, the gospel of John, is the word of God? <laughs> it's got nothing in there but test, attestation after attestation of deity, either by, in, by implication or by overt statement. And... I would be, you know, you could share with people, any, any of these off the list, anybody that you know that has a question about, oh, does the Bible say Jesus is deity? Well, here you go. John 8.58 is probably the best single verse because when you read John 8.58, then you can see that the Jews immediately knew, or John 19, verse 6, when they said that he claimed to be deity. Either one of those would be one single verse you could show anybody that wanted to know what the Bible said. There it is. There it is. He said, I am. That's good enough for me. Now we're going to move into the last sections of the Bible in our study. And evidence of biblical accuracy and acceptance of the canon of Scripture by the church. So it's two subjects actually put together. Now we want to look a little bit at archaeology. Now we start off by saying archaeology has offered countless examples of the accuracy of the Old Testament. Did you know, by the way, that they more, more recently... I read where they dug up a, a, a drinking glass, a gold drinking glass that had the name King Hezekiah on it. And they, they, oh, they said there was no such guy. It was all made up. Did you know they found a piece of stone that I just read here just last week? It said the House of David on it. They, they found it with Pontius Pilate, too. And they found something with Pontius Pilate? Isn't that it? Those are, just, those, those are little things. Those are just little things. Those are not big things. We're just going to share two big things that, are, that were just, that they can't explain. But so, so while many of these small, many of these are small findings, none of none of the artifacts or structures that they have found have cast any doubt upon the accuracy of the Old Testament. There's never been one that contradicted anything. Now, the noted archaeologist William Albright, and he was probably, uh, for the, I think he probably to this day is the most prominent and the greatest of the ar- of the archaeologists in my opinion. Now, I there are others because he's partly involved with discovering the Dead Sea scrolls and that is an uh, unbelievably wonderful find but so here's what he said William Albright said this the excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries certain phases of which still appear periodically have been progressively discredited discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition of the value of the Bible as a source of history now 
You'll notice what follows. His remarks are especially important because, now notice what is said about him, despite his focus on the archaeology of the Bible, Albright was not a biblical literist. He accepted the idea of a documentary hypothesis and the mainstream opinions of the preceding two centuries of biblical criticism, namely that many of the books of the Bible of the Hebrew Bible are comprised of various literary sources, each with its own theological view and agenda. Now, that documentary hypothesis, what that is, just to make a long story short, is there is a school of thinking that they divided up and they said, well, the Pentateuch, there was J-E-P-D, there is a Jehovahist, four different authors in a way late 6th century B.C., probably a thousand years too late, they put these things together, they pieced together, this one wrote this one, this one wrote that, and they pieced these things, and it's really this elaborate, goofy thing, and it's based upon the use of the names of God, or in what they perceive as a slight difference in the writing style. But now, if one person wrote a book, and it was a detailed book of a lot of things, and it had five major chapters, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, do you think there's a possibility when you change subject that your writing style might change slightly? Of course. But so they, so, see, he subscribed to that. In other words, Moses didn't write it, so that's a complete denial of the book of Moses. It throws, it, out. it throws all of the first five books of the Bible out completely. Now, he subscribed to that, and yet in spite of that, he was an honest enough man to say that nothing has ever shown the Bible is historically inaccurate. Now, did he ever get saved? Well, if he maintained this... Uh, documentary hypothesis and he was not a biblical literist and he didn't believe that the Bible was written by God but it was these literary sources you know in other words what he's saying is different individuals got together and this one was believed in this God this one believed in that God this one believed in that God this guy had this religious experience that one had his religious experience they put them together and shook them up and dumped them out and here's what we got well in spite of believing that he still comes up with the right thing now while the testimony of archaeology firmly supports the accuracy of the Old Testament, there are limitations. Proving the accuracy of the Old Testament is, does not prove that the scriptures are God-breathed. Now, you stop right there. I wish it did, but let's be honest. All you can prove is that the Bible was accurate. You cannot prove by any, anything that's ever been dug up that the Bible's God-breathed. It just isn't possible. They're not going to recognize it. There's nothing external that can do this. Nonetheless, the testimony of archaeology is most welcome for us because we believe the Bible by faith. Isn't it nice once in a while to see a little proof of something? It doesn't change me. I, 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 don't, I don't believe the Bible more for the two things we're going to look at. I, I, does, I don't believe it more because of that, but it makes me smile because it's just a testimony to what I believe. It's not going to do anything for the unsaved. So archaeology is going to benefit us it's going to prove the accuracy of the Bible to the unsaved, but, well, I, I guess that's something. But nonetheless, it isn't everything. So, another, uh, so, another area offering a testimony to the accuracy of Scripture is fulfilled prophecy. But here again, while fulfilled prophecy may demonstrate the astonishing accuracy of biblical prophecy, it does not prove the Bible is a God-breathed book. But nonetheless, it's a powerful source of evidence for the born-again believer that the Bible's Word of God. Fulfill prophecy because we believe the Bible's Word of God. It is for us a welcome thing. It is for us a wonderful source that, that helps us along the way to see fulfilled prophecy. And in the final say, unbelievers do not need to believe the Bible is, the word of, is, is God breathed to be saved. They only need to believe the gospel. 
Now, friends, here's where we really get off as believers. That last statement. Remember that last statement. They only believe, to, they only need to believe the gospel to be saved. You know, I still believed in evolution when I got saved. Do you know that? It took me a while once I got believed. And I, this is the Bible's word of God. And I went back to Genesis and, read it, and they showed it to me. It says, oh, okay. It says God did it. I believe it. I don't believe evolution anymore. But you see, I, I didn't get convinced evolution was wrong. I didn't get convinced a lot of things. I believed a lot of garbage when I first got saved. Why? All I needed to believe was the gospel. You can persuade somebody. You could, you could go out there. If you could force somebody to say, okay, evolution isn't right. I can see that it isn't right. There's too many gaps. There's nothing there. I can believe it. Are they going to get saved? Maybe. But probably not. Not necessarily. So remember that. So we don't need to prove this. The, the evidence of archaeology, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy is going to benefit and bless and encourage us. But it's probably not going to change anybody's mind out there. Because it comes down to a simple thing we've been saying. And it's one of the better things I learned in college. I used to jokingly say that the most important thing and the only thing I really learned in college was presuppositions determine conclusions. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you, come and, if you assume something is so and then you begin to look into it, your assumption colors your conclusion. In other words, these individuals that we're talking about, unsaved people, they, their, their assumption is that there is no such thing as the Bible, that there is no such thing as God talking to man, that God never did it, and that the Bible couldn't be the word of God because God doesn't do that sort of thing. So are you going to be surprised if they come up with the fact that the Bible's not the word of God? That's what their assumption they started there. They're not being logical or fair. They're closed-minded. Their assumption automatically guarantees their conclusion. Now, if they came to the Bible with an open mind and say, let's see what the Bible says and see if there's evidence to support what it says. If they were to do that, then maybe some of them could be convinced of some of the accuracy of the Bible. And maybe they might even be able to be persuaded that this is a God-breathed book to say this and for this to happen. It has to be. Well, but that's not going to happen, unfortunately. And Satan's involved in a lot of this, blinding the minds of unbelievers anyway. But so, the testimony from archaeological excavations, point A in the bottom of page 16. Boy, we're making some headway. We're going to get there. We only got to page 19, so we've got only got a couple more weeks, so we're going to fly through this. As, as noted, there are many archaeological findings that attest to the accuracy of the Bible, but there are two major finds that have caused even skeptics to realize the accuracy of the Bible, and I would have to say grudgingly realized because none of them ever wanted to do this. Instead of looking at an exhaustive list, we will summarize these two major finds. Now, there's so many things that we alluded to. For example, the finding that stone with the house of David on it, a piece of a fragment of pottery, or finding that drinking vessel that had King Hezekiah's name on, or finding mentions of Pontius Pilate. All those are little things along the way, but let's look at some big things. The discovery of the Hittite Empire. Now, in the Bible, the Hittites were part of the land back in Genesis 15. If you remember, and uh, let's, let's go there just for a moment and just read it in Genesis chapter 15. God made a covenant with, with Abraham, and it's an unconditional covenant because it doesn't say, if you do this, I'll do that. that that's, a, that's, a, that's a covenant. That's a contract or an agreement. But look at this agreement. Verse 18 of Genesis 15. And I stand by this today, by the way. This is still true today. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed I've given this land, if they do this. No, it says, Unto your seed I've given this land, from the river of Egypt, 
that would be the Nile, the, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. From the Nile to the Euphrates, if you drew that on a map, they never got all that land. Well, they would have in time. That's another story that God would have driven out. He said that he would drive out the, the heathen gradually as they became big enough to need more land. But if this, would have been, this would have been the whole spot of land they were given. Now, it's the river Euphrates. Now, he talked about that. That's east to west. From the, from the west, rather from west, the Nile, to east, Euphrates. Then he's going from basically from north to south, pretty much. He does that in terms of the people. It's the, so it's the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So there they are. The Hittites are down there. Now, in fact, and, and this is somewhat, some, something of an interesting thing, at least one time in Scripture, the land of Canaan is uh, ascribed as being the whole land they were getting. If you look over, really quickly, just go over to Judges chapter 1. We just want to read this verse, and we're going to keep moving. And Judges chapter 1, I'm excuse me, not Judges. No, it is Judges chapter 1. Let's see. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Judge, I get Judges and Joshua confused because they're so close together, and uh, I've, I've worked through both of them a little bit. Judges is a fun book. It goes to show you how, how stubborn human nature is. They do the same things wrong over and over again, never learn. Let's see. Let's see. It was Judges 1, verse 4. Oh, come on, no. No, that isn't the right verse. Ah, maybe it is Joshua 1, 4. I proofread my own stuff occasionally. <laughs> I don't always catch all the mistakes. I should have checked my references. Let's see if that's... Uh, Oh, yeah, it is okay. If you'd make a change in your notes on, on bottom of page 16, as the, land as the land described to Joshua, the Hittites were in control of much of it. Now, I'm gathering that from what it says in Joshua. It should be not Judges, but it should be Joshua 1.4. And I apologize again. I only missed it by one book. <laughs> a close. Get half credit. Now, uh, verse 1 of Joshua 1 1, we'll read down to verse 4. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto, that Jehovah, or the Lord, spoke unto Joshua, the son, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over the Jordan, you and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Now, this land I give to them, did God ever take it back, by the way, from Genesis 15? Did God ever say, I'm, I'm not going to give it to you? That covenant's open and closed, it's made. That's still their land. There's my answer to the two-state solution. Ain't no such thing. It's their land. You got your states elsewhere. You want your two states, you got, you got Iran, you got uh, all over the place. But so continuing on, uh, every place, verse 3, that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites. Huh? Well, back in Genesis 15, they weren't the only people, were they? There were a whole bunch of other people named. So it makes you wonder, the land of the Hittites and, to the going, and, and the great, unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. The land of the Hittites. Wait a minute, they weren't the only people. So it makes you wonder, it makes you wonder, and, and I put in the notes... It, it's, it sounds like the Hittites may have been in control of most of the land because it's called the land of the Hittites. 
Well, there are other people there. Evidently, they were, uh, this was a bigger group. Now, we find out, uh, for example, this is interesting. Now, we, we won't, you can look these up on your own, but one of David's trusted men was a Hittite. Yeah, so they weren't all bad guys. And during the reign of Solomon, we find out that uh, King Solomon sold horses to the Hittites. And you'll notice it's, uh, in, in, the, in the text, it says, all, for all the kings of the Hittites. It's, and that's, that's out of 1 Kings 10 29. And, and uh, you can look that up, but you can see that statement taken out of the verse, that they sold them to all the kings of the Hittites. Now, a lot of times your kings, if you look back in the book of Joshua, you find that they were, they would, the king would be over a city and a small area around it. But so if there were multiple kings, it makes you think there's a lot of, there must have been a pretty good sized group of empire. And in fact, uh, Bathsheba, uh, her husband, Uriah was Uriah the Hittite. He was one of, he was listed as one of, uh, one of the 30 some odd uh, men of, David's that, was that, that were valiant, his most valiant men. Uriah the Hittite was one of them. And so he was a Hittite. And of course, Solomon married many, many wives in the bottom of page 16. One of Solomon's wife was at least a Hittite because he was named. He married, and names all the different people he named women from, and one of them is a Hittite. Now, in the days of King Ahab, the Hittite empire was 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 powerful enough to offer mercenaries to other kings. Now look over at 2 Kings chapter 7 for a moment. I don't want to skip all these verses, but uh, there's just so much here that we just don't have time to go into everything, and I, I, hate, to, I hate to get bogged down any more than we've already been. 2 Kings chapter 7. Now this is Elisha in the time of Elisha, and this is in the days of King Ahab. So this is way late. This is way after David's time even. This is quite a ways down the line because you remember David, Solomon, and the kingdom was divided and way down the line you come across King Ahab. And so uh, let's see. There's, there's, this is the story of four leprous men back in verse, let's begin in verse 3. And there were four leprous men at the entering of the gate and they said unto one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. If we sit still, here we will die also. Therefore, now therefore, come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of great chariots and a noise of horses, even a noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel is hired against us, the king, of Hittite, the king of the Hittites, and the kings of the Egyptians have come upon us. So evidently, this must have been a pretty good-sized empire if they, could sell, if they could sell mercenaries, because they didn't sell. They sold units of a 1,000 and up. So if they had at least a 1,000 mercenaries to sell, there must have been a pretty good-sized nation up there. Now, why is all this important? Well, let's continue reading. We have a quote in here. The Hittites were a powerful force in the Middle East. Now They know this now. From 1750 B.C. to about 1200 B.C., prior to the late 19th century, nothing was known of the Hittites outside the Bible, and many critics allege that they were invention of biblical authors. But, so, there was no evidence of it, and so guess what? All the critics of the Bible, that's how <laughs> you got these people, the Hittites, they don't even exist! It's a fairy tale! Well, in 1876... 
The name Hittite was found engraved on stones in Turkey, and in 1906, Boaz Koy was excavated in Turkey and was identified by the documents found in it that it was the capital of the Hittite kingdom. Oh. Oh, what did this do to those who made fun of the Bible? Say, yeah, see, it's not ag. They found out that it was, it was in Turkey was where it was located, part of it in Turkey, and it apparently it went down into what was, was the land of Canaan, and it evidently prominent enough that they had a control of a lot of the land, because it was called the, the land of the Hittites. So they were evidently pretty big. So no? What's that now? So was the earthquake that they just had. Hmm. They, they've had, you know, they've had their share of fun, haven't they? They really have. So, so now the discovery of the Hittites, they not only existed, but they were a major empire, has done more to attest to the accuracy of Bible probably than any other archaeological finding. And this one was, this one was big because it was 1870s, right in the heyday of the documentary hypothesis and all of its liberalism. All of a sudden, they make the biggest, most amazing find of all that this one place that didn't exist did exist, and it was big. So this really did a lot for the, for the of course, like I say, I, I don't think it convinced anybody the Bible's God breathed, but it sure did show. Don't make fun of the Bible. It is pretty accurate. Now here's another one. This one is the other one that's really a, a mind bender. The discovery of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's a, I have a long quote in here. We're going to read through it. But now, it's quote, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has long been viewed as a legend. Critics assumed that it was created to communicate moral principles. In other words, it was an Aesop's fable. You are a dirty guy like this, like these people are, look what could happen to you. Well, it's just a fairy tale. Well, if either one of these cities can be located and proven, it would be another powerful testimony to the reliability of biblical history. And the destruction of Sodom is treated in Scripture as a, as a real event. Now, you've probably read this story and there are a number of, of uh, references to it. You can see them here. But, and also, something else interesting is that Gen, the Jeremiah 49.18, and you can read it. For the sake of time, we won't go there. It notes that Sodom and Gomorrah will never be inhabited, which is still true. It's never been inhabited. Just like Babylon, by the way. Remember it said in, in Isaiah said a couple times? No, excuse me, Jeremiah said that Babylon would never be re-inhabited. It never was. And they didn't find it for a long, 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 long time. It's desert. Now, Saddam Hussein was excavating some of it and trying to do it. So there's, they've dug up some of it, but it's not a city, and it never will be a city again. So, in the Gospel of Matthew and, and twice in the, in the epistles, Sodom is used as a warning, and you have some references there. But now, here we go, point number E. In 1965, 1967, 1973, diggings in the biblical location of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Bible said it would be, revealed the location of Sodom. It is known as Bab-ed-Dara today. And I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Now, you'll notice, notice this quotation is following. And this is something that is, this is, this is mind-boggling. Because those who say that there was no such thing as Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what? You're wrong. It is there. Quote, following a, following a southward path from Beth, from Bab Eth Dara, there is a city called Numeria. Continuing south is a city called Es Safri. Further south are ancient cities of Pfeiffer and Kanazer. 
Studies have shown these, that these cities have been abandoned about the, about the time of 2450 to 2350 BC. Many archaeologists believe that if Bab Ephra is Sodom, Numeria is Gomorrah, and Esar is Zoar. What fascinated the archaeologists is these cities were covered in the same ash as Bab Eth Dara. Remember fire and brimstone from heaven? Numeria, believed to be Gomorrah, had seven feet of ash in some places. Uh, it rained fire and brimstone. I'd say it was pretty good. In every one of these destroyed cities, ash deposits made the soil a spongy charcoal, making it impossible to rebuild. Oh, interesting. According to the Bible, four of these five cities were destroyed, leaving Lot to flee to Zoar. Zoar was not destroyed by fire, but was later abandoned during this period. I think maybe when Lot came there, they knew who he, where he was from. He was a prominent man in Sodom. He sat in the gate, which made he was a judge. He was somebody well-known. When he came to Zoar, they probably thought, uh-oh, he, he came from that city? Look what he's going to bring with him. And so the people left. I really think they probably left because he showed up and said, oh, my goodness, oh, hot, the hot seat is here with us. He brought it. He's going to bring his charcoal with him. But you notice that. Seven feet in some places of ash. What does that tell you? Hot time in the old town tonight, folks. It really was. They didn't paint the town red. They painted it black. Well, while these findings are not universally accepted by unbelieving archaeologists, there is little doubt in this writer's mind, in my mind, that these are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are just too many similarities to the Bible to ignore. Just too many. Too many. Well, archaeology offers, uh, looking at our next point, we're going to go on and uh, we're going to stop, well, let's see. Maybe we should, maybe we should, we're going to stop at the bottom of 17 for the sake of time because we're going to get another section and, and, and we're close to the end and we're going to get through it in another two weeks. So uh, we did make a lot of headway tonight and I'm um, Appreciative, but we'll, so we're going to come back next week on page 17 at the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. We'll talk about that. But I hope, I hope tonight that when you look at those two, Sodom and Gomorrah and the Hittites, you can see that those two were such dramatic, overpowering, phenomenal finds. There's no way that you're going to deny the Bible's accurate. If they can make such, you can find all these details in Sodom and Gomorrah with the ash and everything, and oh, it just. It, to me, it is just, it's just too much to ignore.